For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, I told you a couple weeks ago, we're going to be studying some awesome prophecy in the book of Daniel. In fact, I said that Daniel contains the greatest collection of predictive prophecies in the history of the human race. I also said, if these prophecies are legit, if you really hear them out, the only logical conclusion is to bow to the ground before the God of the universe. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And maybe in your heart of hearts, you're like, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, tonight is the first of five installments to back up that claim. Five teachings. That's right. I said there's going to be five teachings. Why five teachings? Well, for one, Daniel gives us five visions. There's a series of five visions and dreams over the course of his life. The first one of these, he's only a teenager. The final four, he's in his 70s and his 80s. So this is his life's work, these, these five pictures of the future. And so it's going to take some time to go through those. Secondly, because biblical prophecy It's correlated, meaning there's some here, there's some here, there's some here, there's some here. The whole thing's not in any one place anywhere in the Bible. It's part of what's confusing about it. It's spread out and they interlock, they fit in with one another in ways that make sense, but it takes some wisdom, it takes some time to put the pieces together. And so we're going to have to show how these prophecies and visions relate to one another And, you know, this is why people get into trouble when they take one prophecy out of context and they ignore the rest of it. You've got to study not just the context of the the passage, but you've also got to talk about how does this fit into the Bible's whole scope of its teaching on Bible prophecy. In fact, Daniel is the heart of Bible prophecy. And, And if you hang with us for the next five weeks, what you're going to get is you're going to get a scaffolding that you will be able to fit in and understand the rest of the prophecies in the Bible by fitting them into this backbone that we get in the book of Daniel. So it'll be worth our time. Third and finally, there's a lot of information here. We're talking seven chapters, 210 verses that we're going to have to cover. You, you simply can't go through all that in one night. I knew a guy that tried once. It wasn't good. His head exploded. I'm serious. You don't want that to happen. I don't want to do that to you. We're just going to take our time here. Five weeks. We're going to be moving pretty fast. Historical references, the passages at hand, plus outside passages that we're going to have to bring in, explaining symbols. It's going to be worth it though, okay? So here's what I'm asking. Give me five weeks. (laughs) This and the next four Mondays. I know, maybe you got exams in there, but whatever. This is the end of the world we're talking about here, okay? <laughs> or maybe three weeks, okay? If, and if you like the first three, then the, I'll throw in the, the final two for free, okay? <laughs> Seriously, come back and study these passages with us. I, I think you'll see a, a spark here tonight that hopefully will make you want more. But there's a lot to cover, so let's start reading Daniel chapter 2, which is... It's the vision we skipped to cover the rest of the narratives because we wanted to cover them all together. Daniel chapter 2. Let's read. One night, during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. Uh, they, they didn't count the year that the king came to power, so this would have been more like the third year of his reign, the way we would count it. 
And so this would be right, you know, Daniel was in, in school for three years training for that Babylonian government job. So he, this is right as soon as he gets out of school, basically, as it seems like when this happens. 603, 602 BC. Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare, he called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. Yeah, kings would keep a staff of, of holy people, interpreters of the stars, people that knew magic, people in touch with the gods. And he said, I need to know the meaning of this dream. This is so disturbing. The astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. And by the way, like the next five chapters in Daniel are in Aramaic before it switches back to Hebrew for the rest of the Old Testament. Pretty much. He says, long live the king. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Yes, O king. That's what we're, that's what we're here for. That's what you pay us the big bucks for. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did when he got angry. <laughs> he tore you into four parts and tore your house down. And they said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. <laughs> the astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great or powerful, has ever asked such a thing. This is totally unprecedented. This is not in our contract. No one except the gods can tell your dream and they do not live here among people. Isn't that what he's paying the big bucks for? Because they're in touch with the gods? Well, if your astrologers can't read the stars, then what good are they? So he decides on some budget cuts. <laughs> the king was furious and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed, which now includes Daniel. He just graduated. He wasn't here for this. And because the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Daniel went home and told his three buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we studied in Daniel 3. He told them what had happened. And he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret. So he calls for a prayer session and he calls together the three most spiritual guys he knows, which might have been the only three spiritual guys he knew. And they pray so that they will not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. So they're desperate. Sometimes it's pretty easy to pray when you're desperate. And that's what they are. And they pray all night. And that night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and he said, praise the name of God forever and ever for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. Mark that sentence well. That's exactly what this dream is about that Nebuchadnezzar had, the sovereignty of God, God removing this king, putting this king in its place as it all marches toward the end of human history. God gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. He couldn't be more grateful. And he prays this awesome prayer to God. 
Well, Ariok quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? And Daniel replied, there's no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future, or literally, what will happen in the end of the days. Now I'll tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lie on your bed. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And so God is not just going to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and what it means. He's going to tell him what he was thinking that night as he went to bed, what his mind had drifted to. God reveals the secrets of the heart. And maybe as we're studying this passage tonight, God might be speaking to you and telling you exactly what you were thinking as you were lying there, what your mind was turning to, those things you worry about that you never tell anybody else about. God speaks to those in his word at times. And that's what he does here with Nebuchadnezzar. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. He was wondering, am I the greatest king who's ever lived in the greatest kingdom who's ever lived? How will I be able to keep this going? And Daniel says humbly, it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. God says, I saw what was in your heart, Nebuchadnezzar. And if you really want to know, I will show you the greatest king who will ever live and the greatest and final kingdom there will ever be. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. So there we've got this statue. He says, the head of the statue was made of fine gold. Yeah, its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Yeah, this guy did not skip leg day (laughs) with his buns of bronze. Its legs were iron, and then its feet were a, a combination of iron and baked clay. And as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain but not by human hands. (laughs) And the rock came hurtling through the atmosphere and boom, it struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed. It just crumbled down on top of that rock. Small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind, blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That's all there was. What does it mean? Ah, there it is again. Boom! (laughs) (laughs) That was the dream. Now we'll tell the king what it means, Daniel says. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. 
He's made you ruler over all the inhabited world and he's put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. Truly one of the great things about Bible prophecy is it doesn't speak in cryptic terms and then just expect us to figure them out. So many times, if you just keep reading, it will tell you what the symbols mean. (laughs) And so the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, ruler over the inhabited world, really the greatest ruler the world had ever seen up until that time. A real emperor, a king of kings. And then Daniel said something Neb might not have liked too much. He said, but after your kingdom comes to an end, Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place, as they, as they always do. Another empire comes along. We build our empires, and then they fall, and another one takes over, and then that falls too. This is the Medo-Persian empire. How do we know that this is the empire? Well, For one, if we keep reading the book of Daniel, he tells us. Daniel chapter 8. If we correlate this vision, see these visions correlate with one another. In Daniel chapter 8, he gives a different picture. It's not a statue with different body parts. It's two beasts battling one another. It's this ram with two horns against this single shaggy male goat. And the goat destroys the ram. And it says... The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. And so it tells us who that next kingdom to come along is and who they'll be conquered by. And so we can correlate with Daniel 8. We also know from history, or even just from reading the book of Daniel, that the Medes and the Persians really won empire, sometimes called the Archimenid Empire. These took over in 539, and they really ruled until about in the, five, the 330s BC, about 200 years they ruled. Uh, Why is it inferior? In what way? Well, it's inferior in the sense that the monarch was not as powerful. Remember, we read about the Medes and the Persians and how the king of the Medes and the Persians couldn't take down a law that he had set up. He didn't have that kind of power. It was a constitutional monarchy. And so in that sense, it was inferior as far as the emperor's status, how much power that he had. And so... A second empire, the Medes and the Persians, will come along. They will conquer Babylon, and the the monarch will have less power. It will be inferior, and they will rule the world, just like Babylon did, at least uh, a lot of the world. Third, he says, after that kingdom has fallen, a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. And we know that this empire is the Greek empire. How do we know? If you keep reading Daniel chapter 8, you'll see in chapter 8, verse 21, the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. That's the goat that beat the ram that stood for the Media Persian Empire. And so we can read it in Daniel chapter 8, or we can also look at history and we can see that in 331, a guy named Alexander the Great came along and conquered essentially the known world in about 10 years. Unbelievable speed and power. We'll talk more about these in the weeks to come. Uh, But they conquered and they ruled over Israel. And finally, what are these legs of iron? There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, 
So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break in all these in pieces. Very violent imagery here. What is the kingdom of iron that came after Greece? You probably know. It's Rome. Ancient Rome. How do we know that this is Rome? Well, for one, we can look at history and we can see that Rome is the kingdom that came along after Greece. Rome had taken down the remains of the Greek Empire by the mid-100s BC. They took over Israel in 63 BC. Rome was the empire in char- that was ruling over Israel when Jesus Christ was born. It was, it was Roman governor Pontius Pilate that signed the order to have Jesus Christ crucified. And so they were the, the kingdom in power over Israel at that time. And just the, the violent, powerful language is a really good description of Rome. Look at this, strong, crushing, shattering, breaking, crushing, breaking, pieces all over the place. <laughs> the Roman military was unlike anything the world had ever seen. So powerful. Uh, in fact, as Plutarch, first century historian put it, with iron, not gold, Rome buys her freedom. And that was so true. The military, powerful might of Rome crushed the world and ruled it with an iron fist. And so there you have the predictions of Daniel chapter 2. He predicted first the fall of Babylon, the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. He predicted the fall of that and the rise of the Greek Empire. He predicted the fall of the Greeks and the rise of the Roman Empire after that. And if that was all he predicted here, I would be fully satisfied because that's incredible. And I've never seen anything like this in any other religion or prophecy of the world. And if you ever find anything like it, please come and tell me because I've been studying this subject for a long time. And I've never found anything on this level. And so this is incredible. But there's more. <laughs> After the iron legs, things get a little funky. What? are the feet and the toes. They're, it goes from iron legs to feet that are iron mixed with clay. What is it? The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. And so instead of this unified, like the, the, leg, the, the iron legs seem to have a sense of unity and power to them. This is a divided kingdom. It has... Like iron mixed with clay, it'll have some of the strength of iron. So it's strong in some ways as the legs, but in other ways, it's not as strong. And so it's weaker, it's divided, it's different. Some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that they'll try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. And so these... Whatever this, these, these feet represent, it's going to be nations intermarrying with one another, trying to form alliances through intermarriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. Hmm. What are the feet and the toes? What I'm arguing here is that these are related to Rome, but different a different subsequent empire that comes after the empire of ancient Rome. Why do I think this? I'll give you five reasons. One, they're made of different materials, which at every point in the statue so far has represented a different kingdom. 
Two, they're symbolized by different body parts, which every point in the statue so far has symbolized a different kingdom. Three, they have inferior military power. So they're different from the legs. Instead of going around crushing everything and breaking everything into pieces, they're kind of strong, but not, not quite as strong and not quite as cohesive as the legs. You need a certain cohesion and a unity of command if, you're, if your military is going to be peak power. Fourth, there are key historical differences between how it describes the feet and toes and what ancient Rome was like. For example... It goes on in the next verse in Daniel 2 to say, during the reigns of those kings, whoever those are, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and will stand forever. Well, that's not how ancient Rome came to an end. It's, it looks like this final Feet, these feet and toes look like these go right up to the end of human history as we know it. And so we see there are key, there's a different end to these. When the Roman Empire fell, God did not crush it and set up an eternal kingdom that will never end. Especially if you study the rest of the Old Testament material on the kingdom of God. That is not something humans set up. It is something that God sends the Savior, King Messiah, to set up. He will rule the world himself, something no human ruler has ever been fit to do. He will set up justice and righteousness and fairness and will eradicate evil. And none of that has happened yet. No, it can't be ancient Rome because ancient Rome did not end with the kingdom of God being ushered in and all the other kingdoms being crushed. It's also got a different government than ancient Rome did. Did you notice that? It said in the days of those kings... You know, it, it, what's pictured in the feet and toes is, is like an alliance, a coalition of sovereign rulers trying to work together. Kings, plural. And in a single instant, a, a bunch of kings are brought to an end. With Rome, there was not a bunch of different nations, states with their kings trying to work together. You had the Caesar who was overall, it was very unified. So it's got to be different got to be something different that comes after ancient Rome. A fifth and final point here is if you correlate with Daniel 7, you'll see it confirms our suspicions here that Rome goes right up to the end of the world. This, this, this last kingdom goes right to the end of the world and also has a different government. The last kingdom ends when Christ comes back, according to Daniel 7. It says Messiah was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations. His rule is eternal. It will never end. And also, Daniel 7 confirms, the last kingdom has a confederation of kings banding together. It's got this picture of this horrific beast with ten horns sticking out of his head. And it says, it's ten horns are ten kings who will rule that empire. How many toes on two feet? Ten. So Daniel 2, our guy had ten toes. Daniel 7, 10 horns, which are 10 kings. Those are the kings who are ruling when God sets up his kingdom and he puts all human empires to a final end. In other words, 
Daniel got the first four kingdoms right. He got Babylon exactly right, the Medes and Persians exactly right, Greece exactly right, Rome exactly right. And then he predicted a kingdom that just didn't happen. Are we satisfied? I mean, four out of five is pretty good. Is that good enough for biblical prophecy? I would say definitely not. I wouldn't say he predicted a kingdom that didn't happen. I would say he predicted a kingdom that didn't happen yet. (laughs) That four of these kingdoms are past, that one is still future. A kingdom that will come about at the end of history, right before God sets up his final kingdom. Let's think about this. You've got to understand a little something about Bible prophecy before we go any further. And that's the concept of gaps. What happens in Bible prophecy is you have the prophets and they get this vision. You know, he sees a statue and he's just describing what he sees or he sees a sequence of events and he's describing what happens in chronological order. And the events the prophet describes pretty much always occur in chronological order. It's a sequence But sometimes what the prophet doesn't know is between this thing and that thing, there was a gap. There was a long period of time. It doesn't know, it doesn't say how much time passed between this thing and this thing and this thing. It just says this and then this and then this and then this. For example, we might be able to relate to this. You know, you're looking up at Orion's belt and you can see these three stars here. They look like they're three stars right in a row. In fact, the middle one's a little brighter. Maybe that's a little bit closer. The two on the end, though, are 915 and 817 light years away from Earth, whereas the one in the middle is 1,340 light years away. Now, from this perspective, you can't see the depth, the distances from us. You can just see where they are in relation to each other. If you could kind of wheel around to the side, you'd be able to see a big difference in the stars in Orion's belt. It would look a lot different. Or let's say you're hiking a mountain and you're looking up at the mountain and you're like, whoa, okay, I got three peaks here and then I'll be at the top. I should be there pretty soon. I'm almost there. What the hiker doesn't know, if you could swing around to the side, is that between the early event and the later event, There's a long valley you have to hike through. There's a big gap. Instead of thinking, sweet, I'm almost there, you're thinking, man, I wish I'd brought more cliff bars. (laughs) And this is the position the prophet's in. He describes mountain one, two, and three, and what he doesn't know is he's like, oh, man, there's a big gap between one and two, or between two and three. That's what's happening here. In fact, we're going to see a gap, a prophetic gap, a big one, in every one of these five visions that we're going to study in the book of Daniel. And typically the way it works is it will jump from wherever it is to the end of the world. That's almost always what the gap is. (laughs) From what just happened to the end of the world. So God fills us in on information about how the world will end while he gives other information along the way. And so you need to be ready for an occasional gap, okay? You need to watch, watch for that when you're interpreting Bible prophecy. The burden of proof should be on why there's a gap. You can't just go sticking in gaps willy-nilly. <laughs> no, in, but in this case, we've actually got a, we've got a pretty, strong, pretty strong evidence, a pretty strong case that can be made for a future Rome II, we'll call it, 
at the end of history, okay? It's, it's, I'm calling it Rome too because the iron legs are Rome. The next thing, it's got a lot of Rome in it, but it's got some other stuff. Why did God do it this way? Because God wants you to know that if he got events one, two, three, and four right, that you know five and six are coming. If he predicts Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome, you can be sure Rome too is coming along and the kingdom of God shortly to follow after. That's why he does it this way. He mixes fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy together. Of course, for Daniel, none of it was fulfilled when he got this vision. For us, you know, we get a little hindsight benefit here, but it's still not done being fulfilled yet. So who's Rome too? That's the last thing we need to figure out here. Who is Rome too? You know, Rome too, it's like Rome. It's different from Rome. It's almost like somebody took Rome and blew it into a bunch of pieces and then got some glue and tried to piece it all back together in such a way that it was similar but different to the old thing. Related to but different from Rome. Here's maybe a way to think about it. Where could we look in the world to find the people languages and cultures who used to make up the ancient Roman Empire. Where could we find, where could we find such a gathering of people and nations that are descended from ancient Rome? Maybe we should look at the part of the world where Rome used to be. Maybe there's still even a city called Rome. <laughs> that would be a good place to start. Huh. Let's look at a couple scholars. John Lennox, Oxford professor. Here's what he says. The Roman Empire lasted a long time in various forms, but left a legacy that is still with us. Latin, the first language of modern science, continued for that purpose until the 18th century when more modern languages supplanted it. Latin script is used for most European languages, many of which are derived from Latin itself. And Roman law has had a deep influence on contemporary jurisprudence. Hmm. Stephen Miller, Old Testament scholar, here's what he says. He summarizes his analysis of this. He says, This future world empire will be connected to ancient Rome and that it evidently will involve peoples or nations that made up the old Roman Empire. Shortly before the second coming of Christ, ten kingdoms of unequal strength... He says that 10, it can either be a literal number or a symbolic number. But a bunch of kingdoms, nations of unequal strength are going to do something. They will reunite to form a coalition that will rise out of the ruins of the ancient Roman Empire. Can you see where I'm going with this? Since Rome is part of Europe and the activities of that ancient empire centered in Europe... It is reasonable to assume that this area of the world will play a leading role in this future regime. In fact, in Daniel 7, the prophet indicates that from this empire will come the evil world ruler of the last days, commonly known as Antichrist. We don't have time to get into the Antichrist tonight, but we're going there. Europe. What is Daniel really saying? Not only does he predict the first four kingdoms correctly, 
He then describes a world in the future where Rome splits into 10 or more different nations scattered around the area Rome used to rule. And then these nations are made up of the people, culture, customs, and even languages of Rome. They, quote, try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. They exist as separate nations with their own governments until we start getting close to the end of the world. And then, right before the end of the world, these nations descended from Rome, located in Europe, unite into a federation of nations that, quote, will be divided, but will have some of the strength of iron. Can you believe the Bible would predict something so ridiculous? Can you believe the, this crazy prediction from 2,500 years ago that, that they would think that this would come true? Ancient Rome splitting into warring kingdoms only to reunite in the last days? And then that new alliance becoming the most powerful coalition in the world? Is this even possible? The answer is yes. <laughs> you better believe that's possible. I'd like to talk just a little bit about the European Union, okay? <laughs> I don't know if any of us watch the news here. The European Union really started out of the ashes of World War II. Europe had been killing each other for 1,500 years. And they decided maybe we should try a different approach. Winston Churchill, in a famous speech, coined a famous phrase, we must build a kind of United States of Europe, he says. In this way, only will hundreds of millions of toilers be able to regain the simple joys and hopes which make life worth living. A few years later, the Treaty of Paris was signed. And then, a major treaty called, ironically, the Treaty of Rome, in March of 1957, was signed that really paved the way for what we call the European Union today. It was the six main nations of the European Union, kings, presidents, and queens gathered together to sign a treaty. And where did they sign it? They signed it on the Capitoline Hill, right next to the old Roman Forum. In fact, if you could have looked out the window that day, this is what you would have seen. The old Roman Forum, you can see the Colosseum in the background. You probably could, you probably could throw a football and hit every place that Caesar walked during this time in that area. The Treaty of Rome. Well, this went through several modifications and amendments before finally the Maastricht Treaty replaced it, kind of subsumed it in February of 1992. And this made statements like, the union shall set itself at the following objectives to promote economic and social progress through the creation of an area without internal frontiers through the establishment of economic and monetary union, ultimately including a single currency. Right, all the European nations are going to give up their currency and go in on one together? Yeah, actually they did. It's called the euro. It's been around for over 15 years at this point. Here's McCormick and Olson's book, The European Union, 5th edition. The European Union today is the largest economic bloc in the world, accounting for one-fourth of gross domestic product, GDP, across the globe, one-fourth, and about 20% of global trade. 
There's now virtually unlimited free movement of people, money, goods, and services among most of its member states. Yeah, passing from one country to another within the EU is like driving from Ohio into Indiana. You're like, oh, I'm in Indiana now. It's a global powerhouse, the world's largest economy, its second largest exporter and importer. And with a population of more than 500 million, significantly larger than the United States. When the EU inaugurated the euro in 2002, for the first time since the Roman era, much of Europe had a single currency. Yeah, Britain was part of the EU. They never adopted the euro, though. They kept the pound. Of course, the Brexit last year was their bid to get out, and it passed, 52% of the vote. But they're still trying to disentangle themselves from this union, and they never even went on the same currency. Some people thought the Brexit might kill the EU, but instead it just pulled the one powerful member out that was resisting further unity in that union. And it paved the way for groundbreaking news from this past Monday, one week ago. BBC News, European Union gives impetus to joint defense plan. A common military. Most of the EU's member states have signed up to a plan for closer defense cooperation. UK and Ireland are out, but... The other 23 are now committed to the permanent structured military cooperation plan to boost their defense budgets and joint capabilities. The participants will be backed by a European defense fund that should be worth 5 billion euros annually after 2020. That's closer to $6 billion. So they've got a, five, a $6 billion army they're funding now. The money will be used for weapons research and equipment purchases. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. <laughs> We've got this army. We're not going to use the army. We just have it for 5 billion euros a year. It means simply that national military capabilities can be brought together under a single command at a time of crisis. This is unlike anything we've seen before. They said in the past 10 months, it's moved ahead faster than it has in the previous 10 years since Britain got out. What about the GDP of the European Union? Is it really possible? Okay, so maybe they'll unite, but could they really be the most powerful nation in the world? Oh, you bet. Here we got China, U.S., and the EU. EU's higher than China and the U.S., According to Business Insider 2015, what about the size of the European Union? Although it's not as big as the U.S., there's Texas. <laughs> but their population is way bigger. Look at the population of the United States, 323 million. The EU, 508 million people. Man. What about athletics? This is perhaps the most troubling stat. <laughs> Olympic gold medals by country. On the one hand, you got the U.S. on the right with 1,077 medals. All time, I think that is. USA, USA. <laughs> but look, if you just take the top 11 EU countries in there, 
2103. Man, we better get to work on our triple sow cows. This is going to be real embarrassing pretty soon. All right, what am I saying here? What's my point? The point is not whether the EU is Daniel's Rome II of the end times. I'm not saying that the EU is Rome II predicted in Daniel. I'm not saying it's not either, okay? The point is that 2,500 years ago, Scripture predicted four successive kingdoms, including the rise of the Roman Empire, the fall of the Roman Empire, that the fall of the Roman Empire would break into separate states that would exist as separate entities for the rest of the history of the human race until we get to the end times, at which point they will begin to come back together into a coalition, a fragile coalition, but one nonetheless that will become the most pow- more powerful than any nation in the world. And that, I think, is incredible that we see this. This is really Bible prophecy at its finest right here. And we're only in the first week. We've got four more to go. But let's not forget the punchline of this dream either. You've got the statue. But I think the thing that was most terrifying to Nebuchadnezzar was what happened at the end of the dream. Here you have... God has all the human empires that have ever existed, all of the kings and queens, all of the dictators, all of the generals, all of the kaisers, all of the emperors, all stacked up like a bowling pin as a monument to human autonomy, human empire, human pride. And God looks down and he says, you people are always trying to take over my world. You're always trying to step forward and do something you simply are not fit to do. And God takes this this empire of pride, he takes this statue, and he says, let me show you how it's really done. And he hurdles this rock that he chiseled himself out of this mountain a supernatural rock whizzing through the air until boom, smashes into the feet and pulverizes them, turns the whole thing to dust. And then as it says, the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. Yes, dust in the wind. That's what the empires amounted to. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. Look, no kingdom lasts forever as much as they want them to. And neither will your life. That will come to an end. The question you need to ask yourself is where do you stand with regard to the eternal rock, Jesus Christ? He is the stone cut without hands, the supernatural rock. He is the one who will bring 
these feeble human attempts to take over the world to an end and will set up a true kingdom of righteousness. As it says in 1 Peter, Behold, I lay in Jerusalem a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's all we got for our first week here. We'll be back next Monday. Hope you will be too. God, thanks that you're the, the God that knows the mysteries. You know the truth. You know what the future holds. It's good to know that the God we serve is powerful. I'm thankful that you've shown these things to us, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't look the other way and just try to go about our lives like Nebuchadnezzar tried to do here. But instead, I pray that we would let this sink in, that if, if we're not convinced, that we'd come back for another look. And I pray, God, that I pray people here tonight would come to know you as a result of this truth that you've presented here tonight. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.